Hey friends, welcome. Always delighted that you're with me. And my goodness, have we got a story for you today. It is based on the life of a man named Nicholas Said, who lived such an extraordinary existence. I think you would be very hard pressed to come up with one other person on planet Earth who has a story like his. Today, we're chatting with author Dean Colbreth, whose new book, The Sergeant, details his story. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. Thank you for joining me today. I am always excited to chat with other people who love hidden history as much as I do. So thanks for being here. Absolutely. Okay. You have a new book out called The Sergeant. And I would, first of all, love to have you tell us, who is The Sergeant? The Sergeant is a soldier in the Civil War called Nicholas Said, although he was born as Muhammad Ali bin Said. He was born in a Muslim kingdom in the center of Africa, a thousand-year-old kingdom. His father was a chief general of that kingdom, a, a guy who rode into battle wearing a coat of chainmail, wearing an iron helmet and clothes within his turban, fighting with swords and spears, kind of like he rode out of the Arabian Nights. I mean, this was a uh, kind of a medieval kingdom in the early 1800s. So Nicholas Said left Africa under circumstances we can talk about, went through Europe and arrived in the United States right on the eve of the Civil War. He tried joining the army at that time, just weeks after the first shots were fired at Fort Sumter. At that time, the army was for whites only. So mm-hmm. he was he was barred from joining. He ended up being a French teacher at a uh, private African-American school in Detroit. But as soon as Abraham Lincoln opened the army up, then he went to Boston to join the army, became a sergeant, which is about as high as you could get as an African in the army at that time, and served in the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida. And then after the war, stayed in the South. Mm. First of all, this is a kind of a mind-blowing story. If you set out to write a fiction book with this as a premise, your editor might be like, hmm. Hard to suspend your disbelief that we're going from like a medieval kingdom with riding into battle with chainmail to I teach French in Detroit. (laughs) (laughs) And again, something that sounds like it comes from a fiction book and you wouldn't believe it. You know, at the time that he was teaching French in Detroit, French, uh, French and English were two of the nine languages that he spoke. He also spoke German, Italian, Russian, Arabic, Turkish. Mandara and Kanuri. And when he stayed in the South after the war, he stayed there to teach the freed slaves how to read and write English. Hmm. So, you know, he, he, he was just bursting with knowledge. How did you come across this man's story? Because this person lived such an extraordinary life, and yet he's not taught about in the United States. To many historians, his story has been lost. And I would love to know how you came across it. It all started more than 20 years ago. I was assigned by my newspaper, the San Diego Union Tribune, to go down to um, the Middle East after 9-11 to report on how 
Muslims were feeling about the United States at that time. I went to Egypt and Jordan and the Palestinian territories and Israel. And uh, I was talking to students at Bethlehem University. Then they started asking me, how long have Muslims lived in America? What have their lives been like? How have they been treated? And, you know, some of those questions I I was able to come up with answers to. Uh, Others I couldn't. When I got home, I started studying. I started searching through historical texts. I found Muslims all the way back almost to the Mayflower. Um, Mm -hmm. There were were Moroccans living in, in the city of New York within 15 years of the Mayflower landing. But, you know, when I was doing the searches, I was looking for the name Muhammad, and I found Muhammad Ali bin Said. Nicholas Said. He had written an article for the Atlantic magazine in 1867, kind of written a, an autobiographical article, and then he, he turned it into a full-length autobiography about uh, six years later. With that as a basis, that provided the um, framework for my book. Mm. How did you go about researching something of this nature? Because we know that So much of American history was written by the victors, right? It's written by people who hold the power, people who are largely Caucasian men. And very often the histories of people of color, the histories of women have been either intentionally or unintentionally obscured from history and much more difficult to find those primary sources. So even though he has a biography, autobiography that's left behind, how did you undertake your research on a project of this magnitude? Well, at the time, during the Reconstruction, he was actually a celebrity. There were lots of newspaper articles about him. He gave speeches to in various places. The Nation magazine suggested that he should even be appointed an ambassador, or they said maybe even a vice president someday, you know, was, mm. but, you know before they could imagine an African-American president, but I looked at diaries of people who knew him. And also during that time, there were the government documents, uh, his his military records. I I searched through his military records, which he didn't even uh, mention in his autobiography. I needed to fill that in. I also contacted uh, archives in the various countries that he went to in Russia, England, Amsterdam, and um, Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The subtitle of your book, The Sergeant, is The Incredible Life of Nicholas Said, Son of an African General, Slave of the Ottomans, Free Man with the Tsars, and Hero of the Union Army. You mentioned that his father was an African general. Let's move on to the second part of your subtitle, which is Slave of the Ottomans. What happened there? How did that happen? So after his father died, his father died in battle. He he went to a boarding school. He he was very in a very privileged family. His father had been the governor of six provinces in the country. His father owned 150 slaves. And then after he graduated that boarding school, he was probably about 13 or so at the time. Uh, he wanted to go off with a lot of his friends and go hunting up in the northern part of the country, right on the edge of the Sahara. You know, and his mother was warning him, don't go to the Sahara, you, you'll be kidnapped, you'll be sold into slavery, which is exactly what happened as they were hunting this band of Tuaregs, uh, you know, these uh, nomads from the Sahara, band of Tuaregs came down, swept through the area, and kidnapped him and his friends, took them several hundred miles to a slave market where they sold them as slaves. And from there, you know, he was purchased by a slave trader in the city of Merzouk, which is in central Libya. And to get to Merzouk, he walked barefoot, as did all the uh, other slaves in the caravan, for 2,000 miles through the Sahara Desert. What? again adding that to your list of you know like this is my plot in my fiction book barefoot 2000 miles in the sahara no nope that wouldn't your editor would be like that is not real (laughs) yeah no at one point in time they were going over this field of lava very sharp stones so at one point in time their masters did make them sandals out of camel skin. But the the stones were so so sharp that they sliced right through the camel skin and everyone came off with bleeding feet. So it didn't really matter, you know, barefoot or wearing these sandals. You know, it was not a pleasant journey either way. Mm. What was life like for him as an enslaved person in the Ottoman Empire? Well, the Ottoman Empire had many different classes of slaves, as did uh, the entire Muslim world. They had plenty of people, uh, slaves like American slaves. They had plenty of slaves who lived lives of drudgery and hard toil, hard labor. But they had very high-skilled slaves, and technically, his father one of the richest men in the kingdom of Borno, technically his father and all the other generals of Borno, most of the other high-ranking bureaucratic officials, they were all slaves. They were Mm. slaves to the sheik. They were slaves to the sultan. So this is a 
very different kind of slavery than we than we would have in America. You know, there were high skilled slaves that often were given paths to freedom. They were given allowances that would allow them to purchase their own freedom. And that's what happened with him. He was in the city of Merzouk for three weeks. He worked in the fields of Merzouk. It's in the middle of the Sahara Desert. But they have farms there because they have water deep underneath the ground. So his job was to pull up that water out of wells and to water the fields. Very hard labor. For three weeks he's doing this. He gets whipped every day by by this other slave who is his overseer. And finally, he goes to his master and he says, listen, I, you know, with this guy whipping me with this terrible diet that I'm having of a couple turnips and, and a few dates, I really can't do this anymore. Now, if a slave had done that in the, in the United States, they mm-hmm. could have been whipped again. But under Islam, Slaves had exactly that right. They had the right to complain to their master. Their master didn't have to follow what they wanted, but they at least had the right to complain. And they even had the right to ask for a different master. His his master said, you know, this is just hard work. You know, this is farm work. You know, what were you doing before? And he said, well, I was the son of Barkagana, this general. And, And the slave guy goes, Barkagana, I know Barkagana. You know, I used to, uh, I went on a uh, slave hunting mission with him once. Uh, so I, you know, I'm very familiar with your dad. You don't belong in the fields. What can I do for you? So Nicholas Said says, I would like to be sold to a Turk. And mm-hmm. the reason he would like to be sold to a Turk is because Turks had a reputation for providing allowances to buy your way to freedom. And in the meantime, had a very good reputation for treating their slaves pretty well. So that's what happened. He got sold to a tobacco dealer in Tripoli, where he learned the art of serving tobacco, a very important thing in Ottoman culture. It's like serving tea in China or Japan. And from there, he was sold to the foreign minister of the Ottoman Empire, who was looking for a tobacco server because, he, you know, he needed that for his diplomatic negotiations. There was a Russian ambassador who was trying to negotiate on the eve of the Crimean War. The Russian ambassador saw him and apparently was very impressed. You know, he's a guy who could speak a few languages. He was very obviously very intelligent. And the Russians actually had a habit of buying very intelligent slaves and taking them up to Russia, where slavery was illegal. They would take them to Russia and they would free them. They would set them free and they would say, you know, hey, if you stay with us for a while, if you work for us for a while, we'll give you enough money to get back to Africa and you go home and everything. Their hope was that they would show these guys such a great time that they would stay in Russia. Why did they want them to stay? If you were in an aristocratic family, then having an African servant was kind of a status symbol. Uh, You know, if you had a very intelligent African servant working for you, that was kind of exotic. It goes back to Peter the Great, who actually had a similar situation of a person very much like Nicholas Said who became the third highest ranking officer, they recognized if a person showed 
their good skills, intelligence, you know, they recognized them and compensated them for that. And uh, Nicholas Said became a what's called a valet de chambre, which is a, sort of the top, top rank of being in the servant class. But it was more than a servant. It was more like a personal assistant, even a personal manager. A gentleman's gentleman is what they used to call it. And it was like he was a gentleman. It was like he was, you know, one of the nobility. Mm. And he accompanied a Russian prince throughout Europe, meeting kings and queens and everything. Finally, after five or six years, decided he wanted to go back to Africa. His employer was very upset, but said, okay, uh, you know, he gave him a lot of money. But out, from out of nowhere, this Dutch count appears. He says, I'm going to bury this, this English woman. I'm going to take an uh, extended honeymoon throughout the Americas. Um, we're going to take a year and we're going to go to the Caribbean, the United States and Canada. And... Nicholas Said was was by this time was just very curious about the outside world. You know, I mean, he had just spent five or six years in Europe and he wanted to see more. You know, he really had this appetite for exploring the world around him. And so he decided, okay, well, for one year, I can put off my trip to Africa. I'll go to the United States. And that's how he ended up here. What made him think, well, I'm new here. But let me go ahead and fight in this war. You know, you mentioned that he tried to immediately join the war and was denied because Abraham Lincoln had not permitted African-Americans to join or even Africans from joining the Union Army until later. But what was his motivation of like, I'm new here, but I want to fight in your war? I think there were a couple of motivations. For one thing, he encountered American racism, which he hadn't really encountered in Europe. In Europe, it was much more a matter of class. And as a gentleman's gentleman, he had, you know, he had a very superior position to most working class Europeans. And he was not treated like an inferior. But the day that he got off of the boat in New York, or the day after it was Sunday, and he went to, to church with his uh, employer that was run by an abolitionist, a uh, very vocal abolitionist, but he was asked to sit in the in the quote Negro pews, the um, segregated area in the balcony of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, from that very moment, you know, and going on, going on to experience a race riot in Detroit, he began experience American racism. And I think that that was one motivating factor. Another motivating factor was he knew that Europeans were encroaching into Africa and getting closer and closer to Borno, to his homeland. This is something that he wrote about in his biography, that he felt very sorry for his people. I cried for my people because they had no idea about what Western military tactics were like. So I think one reason he joined the army was because he wanted to learn lessons that he could bring back to Africa, you know, in in the future. Mm. So it was a combination of the two, a combination of wanting to free the African slaves in the South, but also wanting to bring back messages that his people could, could use in Borno. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. 
And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up, and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house and then when people come over they're like um your house smells weird there's a solution for that and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant it is taking care of the smell at the source by using lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet it is a whole body deodorant it is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code SHARON. 
you mentioned that he ends up in Detroit. He's teaching French. He gets the message somehow that he is eligible to join the Union Army, and he travels to Boston to sign up. What were his experiences fighting an American war? Well, the experiences of uh, all the African-American troops was that they wanted to free the slaves, but they were also facing intense prejudice from the Northern High Command, from the Union High Command in the North. So they were right, uh, you know, really fighting a war on two fronts uh, against the Confederacy and against the, the, the High Command, which was really trying to restrain them, trying to underpay them. And there were many protests throughout the, the war about this. There were many near mutinies in his regiment. So there was this fight against, uh, you know, this treatment that they were getting. Once they had signed up, the federal government introduced a rule which Massachusetts firmly opposed, saying that no Black troop, no Black soldier, sergeant, corporal, whatever, could make more than $7 a month compared mm. to $13 a month for the lowliest white private. They were very angry about this. They refused to take that pay. So for a year and a half, for two years, they were working without pay, going into the battlefield, digging trenches. Massachusetts offered to pay them, offered to make up. The federal government says, okay, $7 a month. Massachusetts offered to give them the extra $6 so they could be paid the same as white soldiers. And they said no, because that they would still be accepting the federal idea that they weren't worth as much as a white soldier. Mm. They want, you know, they, they wanted to show that they were worth that much. They, you know, and in battle they did. They often accomplished things in battle. The white troops didn't. There was a, a big battle that uh, Nicholas Sight was almost involved in, but in the Battle of Olaste in Florida, the 54th Massachusetts basically prevented the Confederates. They, you know, it was a terror. There had been a terrible defeat for the Union. The Confederates were r raging through the field, and the 54th Massachusetts stood up against them as. You know, all of the other uh, soldiers, the white soldiers were, were retreating, were, you know, yelling at the 54th that they were kind of stupid for going up and facing what would be sure death. But the 54th would the battle cry, three cheers for Massachusetts and $7 a month. They got there and they actually held the, the Confederates off through their own skill and bravery. And even protected themselves from being slaughtered by a, a little trickery that they did against the Confederates. And so it was acknowledged by soldiers, even by the Union High Command, that these were valuable, valuable soldiers. And yet still, there was a feeling that they sh shouldn't be paid the same as white mm. soldiers. So they basically say, draw a line in the sand. You're going to pay us what we're worth or nothing at all. And was the intention then to try to fight for equal pay after the war ended? Were they ever successful in getting the back pay that they were owed? They were actually successful. It took them more than a year. 
got full pay retroactively. So they got it from the time they had served, they had joined the army. But it was through protests. It was through petitions to Abraham Lincoln and to, to people in the War Department. It was sometimes through acts of mutiny. Technically, even refusing to take your pay as an act of mutiny, uh, which they could have been technically sentenced to death for. So, you know, they were really um, taking their own lives in their hands and doing this. One of Nicholas Said's own soldiers, uh, you know, and he was apparently active in this movement for equal pay. There was a committee that he served on, a committee of uh, the sergeants of the 55th that was related to the equal pay movement. So he was active in this role. And uh, one of his uh, privates and also uh, his corporal ended up being sentenced to jail for some protest activity. One of his privates was executed. Um, One of the few people who were executed, including Wallace Baker, who who was under Saeed at the time. So, you know, it was a... um, dicey situation Mm. but they prevailed listen i know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week and it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try like which one is worth your money and if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try one skin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code Sharon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. After the war ended... What made him stay in the United States, especially in the Reconstruction era South? What made him stay instead of returning home? I think during the war, I think that he felt that just seeing the situation of of the slaves around him, because slaves were always coming into the Union camps. They were escaping from slavery uh, that they had on plantations just a few miles away. You know, So he knew how terrible 
situation was for slaves here. And I think that he wanted to improve that. He felt through education that they would be able to make, uh, you know, higher living through higher living, that they would be able to gain respect and civil rights. It was a fairly conservative message at the time. You know, some people like Frederick Douglass were pressing for more immediate civil rights. But on the other hand, given where he came from, given that that's the way it seemed to him to operate in Europe, it's kind of understandable that he felt that way, you know, and he was not alone. People like Booker T. Washington at Tuskegee uh, Institute in Alabama felt exactly the same way, mm -hmm. kind of a naive point of view. But it was, you know, it's easy to say it was naive in retrospect, but, you know, they were sort of counting on human kindnesses that didn't end up coming. Mm. If there was one thing that you wish you could tell people about this story or about his life or about this time period, what takeaway would you like for them to have? I think one thing I would like them to have is that, you know, this this is a very unique story. Going to Istanbul, going to mm -hmm. St. Petersburg, being baptized into the Orthodox Church. These were very unique events. You know, it would be hard to replicate. but. Uh, there were plenty of other people like that, not like that in the circumstances, but there were plenty of other African Americans who, some of whom had gone through slavery, some of whom had been born free, because there were a lot of, you know, the 54th and 55th Massachusetts were mainly freed Africans. They were mainly freeborn. Some of them had been free for generations, and they felt this duty to go down the South and help other people get free. So it was, uh, you know, some of them came from, uh, had been free, free men in Canada. They came from Canada. They came from the West Indies. So it was not, it was a, a unique, very unique story in one way and not so unique in others because there was this power that we don't really fully acknowledge in our history books that, you know, African Americans played a crucial role in ending slavery. Without their help, the Union could have lost the war. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they represented a significant part of the Union drive to finish the war. Mm. So, so, you know, uh, a lot of the book focuses not only on him, a lot of the Civil War portion of the book, but also the soldiers around him, because, uh, you know, they're all facing the same struggle. Mm, mm. Fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. I absolutely loved learning more about the story. And it is, you know, as, as you mentioned, such a unique story in history, but in that he was a hero of the Civil War, he was not alone. I love that. Yeah. Th thank you for being here. Sure. Thank you for having me. There are so many more details on the fascinating life of Nicholas Said. So check out Dean Colbert's book, the sergeant. And you can follow him on Facebook if you want more information. I'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening to Hearer's Work. It's interesting. This show is written and researched by Heather Jackson, Sharon McMahon, Valerie Hoback, and Amy Watkin. Edited and mixed by our audio producer, Jenny Snyder, and is hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. 
We'll see you again soon.